this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Okay, so what if I did try to take a bunch of these disparate ideas that I have and just bring them into one thing? How do I unify them? Um, what does that look like? Right. And that, so the origin, the, the Acorn, is two separate games that were driving me mad that I eventually figured out what I can just smash these things together. Spencer and I sit down and we talk about how video games led him to finding role-playing games and interestingly enough, how they inform how he makes games today. A uh, quick little buzz there. If you are a StarCraft fan, you are in for a treat because for the first time on this show, we talk a lot about StarCraft. We also do a deep dive into a game I'm obsessed with, Slayers, and uh, you'll soon understand why. We talk about what he calls the Warframe debacle and why he canceled a Kickstarter after five hours. We cover his Lumen system for creating looter shooter RPGs. And make sure you stick around until the end to hear about his new game, Rune. It's a Souls-like solo RPG and it's on Kickstarter right now. If you scroll down, you'll have a link to it. This episode is made possible because of patrons of Third Floor Awards on Patreon. And I want to give a quick shout out to our all-time most generous patrons. A big thanks goes out to Nick Westbrook, Craig Chuba, Kevin Smith, Marcus Weeb, Sam Newman, Ambrose Ingram, Patrick Healy, Drawn X, Wookie Gunner, Cody Ravicki, Dane Leergaard, Keith Suderman, and Matthew Riddle. Because of them and all of the 100-plus patrons, um, I can put stuff out every week. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Spencer. Do you love to unplug and play games around the table? Greetings, friends and floorheads, to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to Spencer Campbell, the designer behind Nova, Slayers and the new game Rune. Spencer, welcome back to the third floor. You've been here before. I have been here before. I found my way back to the third floor. Happy to be here. Very excited <laughs> to be here. It's good to see you, man. I really enjoyed uh, that uh, segment, the live stream that we did with, uh, with with Navi. That was a lot of fun. That was really fun. <laughs> that, uh, that reminds me, yeah, of the whole talk about Blades in the dark and <laughs> yeah, that was really good. I enjoyed that. I should do a gif of Navi and I's reaction when you said that. <laughs> Heresy. Uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Uh, that was great. So unfortunately for you, we got to do the standard mm. thing that you do on every stupid podcast you come on, which is 
figuring out your gaming origin story. So the way I like to phrase it is, you know, at some point you knew nothing about this, right? You knew nothing about role playing dice, writing things on sheets of paper and pretending to be other people. And then it was put in front of you for the first time. So can we go back to that moment? Yeah. So, um, I got I, I I think I got into RPGs later in my life than maybe a lot of folks typically do. Like a lot of folks will get that like D and D exposure from like a parent or an older sibling or something when they're kids. And I I didn't have any of that. Nobody in my family or my life was a, was into role playing. You know, the closest I you know I skirted with and I played a lot of wargaming which you can you can pretend to role play while you're doing it but it's not the same um so I didn't get into or or I wasn't exposed to role playing games until I started watching APs of them in early grad school for me so wow. post college Spencer was when I first got exposed to role playing games and how did you get exposed to APs? How did you fall into that? So um, I want at the time I used to watch a variety streamer on Twitch. I don't watch him anymore, but it me JP was one of the early variety streamers on Twitch alongside a few other folks. And specifically, he uh, proposed doing a um, a uh, a D and D actual play called role play r-o-l-l play um and the reason i was drawn to it is because one of the players was a guy named jeff robinson now jeff robinson is well he was he passed a few years ago he was a professional starcraft player and if anybody knows me they know how i am obsessed with starcraft and so jeff was one of my favorite uh foreigner players in starcraft you're either korean or you're a foreigner uh interesting so jeff was one of my favorite foreigner players he played protoss which is what i played yeah he's a great personality i think he's hilarious um so i knew jeff was gonna be doing something so i was like i'm gonna watch jeff do this thing um and I got super sucked into the whole concept of role playing thing because then I, then I saw it. Then I saw it in action, and I, I realized how fun it could be. You know, I yeah. had always done make believe and and pretend. And like I said, with the wargaming stuff, I did try to do like role play esque campaigns by like writing up scenarios or like alternative rules where we're kind of like playing as these people and so like I I had already been like flirting with the idea and then once I saw it in action I went ah I see this is the thing I've been looking for uh and then that that was so that's that's sort of the origin point there so when you're watching it and you say that's what I've been looking for what was the search so what did you find I saw so I had always been somebody who liked playing make believe. I'm I am I'm such a Peter Pan syndrome person. I <laughs> I don't want to grow up. I love make believe. I've always been that way. And seeing um so it, it was two things. It was like codified make believe which was, you know, also, a big thing growing up for me was Calvin and Hobbes. And oh, nice. That's how I learned how to read, actually, was with Calvin and Hobbes. My mom was very into it. And in Calvin and Hobbes, you have the example of Calvin Ball, the game that has no rules. And they're just making up the rules as you go. And there's fun in that. And I enjoy that idea. But I also, I am a very kind of like rules I like boxes. And so like well, once I saw... You're a war gamer. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> right? So I saw that I could put boxes onto that concept of 
make believe. And I went, ah, that this is what I've been looking for. And then also seeing somebody do a lot of that um, creative creativity in like world building. I, right. again, I was writing these fantastic, like fantastical alternative scenarios for our war gaming. I was already doing some of that stuff. And so seeing like, Oh, okay. So I can take those like weird scenario things that I've been doing in the world building stuff and I can bring it to a thing that has us just pretending to be the characters instead of having to play like a four hour long game of Warhammer. We can do a four hour thing of make believe. Right. Right. So um, and and I found this out um, a long time ago, but I mean, I, I I'm old enough to have played Starcraft when it first came mm. out. Uh, that's that's how old that's Craig old. Right. And I was shocked to find that a decade, two decades after the game was released, that it still has a huge following and a huge audience and it is still being played competitively. And it's interesting that and I, that just blew my mind right when I when I found mm -hmm. that out. And it's interesting that obviously you had a huge interest in it because you were, you were watching him and drawing it to it. What is it about Starcraft that hooked you so hard? And it was it playing it, watching people playing it. And what what was it? So it was definitely playing it at first because I, I also played it at release. I was about 10 years old when it came out. <laughs> I was uh, older than 10. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could have babysat you, okay? <laughs> my, ahead, my, na my neighbor down the street, who was a couple of years older than me, had it. And I remember watching him play it and just being fascinated by it and then getting a copy and playing a ton when I was a kid, being really bad at it. But of course, like you could throw cheat codes in and just have fun with it. And then... In high school, I had friends who were pretty good at it and we would play on Battle.net or like we start. That's when I started to learn about IC Cup, which is like an alternative server for more competitive yeah. play. And uh, and so I would dabble and I'd still get my ass kicked. I was not good, but I enjoyed it. And then uh, it was in my freshman year of college that I learned about the competitive scene, like the, the pro scene out of out of Korea and. I would I would be up at like three o'clock in the morning to watch the games live again. And at the time, knowing no Korean at all, watching it and just being fascinated by how amazing these players were and just getting completely drawn into this world and like having favorite players and learning about build orders and strategies and like who is revolutionizing the game. And um, and then like I met the people the people who started the CSL which is the Collegiate Star League which was they they came out of um Princeton these these two friends who wanted to create a college level StarCraft league in North America and they started very small and I managed to get in while they were very small and I helped I was one of the admins I was one of the early cool. people who helped build I didn't really build it to the way that like Duran and Mona did, but like I helped them support the the process in its building. And so I was just super into getting people to get, trying to get people into Starcraft at that collegiate league. And this is before like esports were popularized at the college level where like you could get scholarships. Like that was right. a, a virtually unheard of concept. This was just people playing Starcraft in their dorms uh, against people across the country. Um, so I got really into it and it just, it, I mean, it, it, in the beginning it was getting it, like, it was playing that got its hooks into me. And then the competitive scene is what, like, I stopped 
trying to play like competitively myself and just play to enjoy it, but was very into the competitive scene and watched professional Korean streams and players all the time. And then eventually the the foreign scene caught up and you get some really cool commenters like Day9 who helped kind of like elevate it to the outside of the Korean scene. Um, And like Sean Plot, Day9 is a fantastic human being and just also... Uh, helped like listen to him talk about how important starcraft is and like it's it's like beautiful it's beautiful to listen to somebody whose like life has been so touched by starcraft and so that's the stuff that i got really into later on and now in my third phase for me the thing that i love about starcraft is it's asymmetrical uh, or there's a great degree of asymmetry. And anybody who knows me from like a design perspective knows that I really like asymmetry in things. And so it's, you know, if if I wasn't aware of it in the beginning, that got laid into my head really early on. And like yeah. that concept of playing the same game, but playing it very different than the person sitting across the table from you was something that I didn't see in anything else. Because, you know, I grew up playing board games this like the same like mass-produced board games that a lot of people play and yeah we're all playing monopoly the same way we're all playing yahtzee the same way it's not like i get to roll uh d4s and you roll d6s and my dice explode like that's not how yahtzee works and so to see something where like oh the zerg are completely different than how the protoss play um yeah you care about minerals and gas but like beyond that is real different. Uh, well, and it's there's so many layers too, right? Um, uh, with StarCraft, right? So you've got, um, and I suck at all these layers, uh, <laughs> but you've got, you've got, you've got, you've got the hand-eye coordination, right? Because there's a speed factor. Then you've got the tactical layer, right, of reacting to what's happening mm-hmm. and being able to adjust and so on and so forth. Then you've got the strategy level, which you walk in with, which is this is my build order. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going up against so and so and whatnot like that. When you're watching it, though, mm. for you, are you looking at all of that and appreciating all of that? Or is there certain aspects of those layers that you focus on when you're when you're consuming it? Yeah, for me, it's the thing that's always been fascinating is build orders yeah. because um because I think the reason build orders are so fascinating to me is because my favorite professional player is Bisu and Bisu is a Protoss player, <clears throat> pardon me, out of Korea. And Bisu is, is responsible for bringing Protoss uh, to be competitive against Zerg when for a long period, Protoss just simply couldn't beat Zerg. And Bisu came up with a particular build order that for StarCraft fans, you'll get this and everyone else won't get it, but it centers around Corsairs, which are a unit that shoot Zerg air units, harassing Overlord so that you could build these invisible units called Dark Templar and destroy the Zerg. And there's a very specific build order that you follow to do it. And seeing that, and then suddenly seeing how that could so rapidly change the whole professional scene. Like suddenly the Protoss could beat Zerg. Uh, was mind-blowing to me that somebody could figure out specific timings like to the second that you need to like put things and like very specific orientations of where you put buildings and units on the map that that is just a thing that is really like that's a beautiful thing to me (laughs) that's a beautiful thing to me to watch build orders and then like you said you go into a match with, with ideas about what your build order is and then 
the true masters are people who can learn to change their build order when they scout and realize like, I thought they were gonna do this and they're doing, I thought X, they're doing Y, so now I need to do Z. Uh, and that's that's the really hard stuff because most people who go in, if, if you understand build orders, you'll go in and say, I'm doing this build order hell or high water yep. because I've practiced this and it works when people do this and it doesn't work when they do this and I'm, I'm not gonna fluctuate. <laughs> Um, but to watch people who know like, ah, okay. So I've seen that they have this many worker units at this time in the game. I know that they're going to do this, which means I now need to do this. Yeah. Uh, is, is the coolest thing in the world. It, to it, me. <laughs> it's incredible. And, and there was a period of time where I was very much into, um, computer online gaming, right. And, and these multiplayer mm -hmm. things and it, it exploded, you know, with Battle.net and, uh, World of Warcraft two was kind of the one that launched mm -hmm. and Starcraft came soon after. One of the things and I would love to know, I'm sure somebody's written papers about this, but one of the phenomenons that my friends and I noticed is we would walk away for a game and it was being played a certain way. Right. So there were certain truths that we knew and everybody was like we were just sanding the corners and, and we were finding edges, but everyone was still playing the same way. And then you right. walk away from a game and come back a week later and the whole landscape has changed and the spread of strategy and how it just spread like a virus among the community where somebody would see somebody would try something stupid it would work someone would see that they would change it they would build it. and next thing you knew when you came back it completely like changed everything and that's very fascinating to me the way that those ideas just um just just spread like that and that's got to be happening with the starcraft even after all these years yeah. And like the cool thing about all that is like a lot of that happens without, you know, nowadays it makes sense that that happens because you've got professionally right. broadcasted streams of professionals and you can see like, ah, OK, so this is the meta. People are doing this. So I will learn what the meta build is. But like the fact that it was happening before any of that was happening meant that just somebody tried something on Battle.net and it worked and it frustrated somebody else. And so they went and tried exactly. it and they frustrated somebody else. And the next thing you know, Zerg are four pooling and you're like, this is the worst <laughs> thing to ever happen is that the Zerg figured out they can four pool. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. Like, it's really, really cool. <laughs> yeah. And it's um you know, and you see it, you see it in design too, right? You, uh, we see it in the RPG community as well. And on itch where you just see something, some little spark happens. And all of a sudden you go back to itch three weeks later. And it's like, what the hell is going on right now? And it's, it's, it's very interesting, but let's talk about role-playing games. So you, wa yeah. you watch the stream, you say, this is definitely like, this is my jam. This is what I've been looking for. What happened after that? So after I started seeing it played, I wanted to take uh, a stab. But I want I, so I watched for a while um, before I took a stab at trying it. Um, and they were playing, uh, if I remember correctly, three point five D and D, which I I enjoyed watching them role play. I did not enjoy watching them play, engage with a lot of the mechanics of the game. In fact. A very common point of contention that happened in the episodes, and I would be on Jeff's side with this, is calling for roles when a thing wasn't necessary to roll. And like, you know, like there's somebody unconscious in front of you and you want to bind them and you're like, well, you have to roll for it. And you're like, they're unconscious. Like, how can I fail this action right now? And like 
go, you know, I, I, this is not me to like disparage the DM at the time, but he was a very traditional GM. Right. So very much of the like follow the rules as as is. And I dictate the pace of things. And so watching it, I was like, I enjoy when they're just kind of like shooting the shit with each other and like just free to be their characters. I didn't like when they were engaging with things. So I didn't know how to start myself because I didn't know other games other than what they were doing. Right. So it wasn't until I started to see other games play that I went, okay, there are other ways of doing this that aren't that. And for me, the game that, that was that, that catalyst was dungeon world, which, um, is a powered by the apocalypse fantasy game because I wanted to play that fantasy thing. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. My dad got me into Lord of the Rings when I was really young. Love Lord of the Rings. Love fantasy. It's it's fun stuff. And so, but I didn't want to play D and D. And so, watching uh, Dungeon World be played, and I went, okay, I get it now. Like that's that's more in line with what I'm interested in doing. Then I I took that concept. I brought it to my. Uh, my friends and my brother uh, and said, do you want to do you want to try this? Because I, I want to try running this. And they all said, yeah, sure, let's do it. And the thing is, my brother and uh, our friends at the time are all improvise improvisers, impro- oh, improv Lord. comedians uh, like they, they're performing at Second City. So like the right. highest tier of improvisers in the nation and sitting down at a table with them and like I did the thing like where I prepped a whole thing I made like a whole bunch of stuff and I'm like okay here's what we're gonna do I like in my head I knew what we were gonna do and then I sit down with a bunch of Chicago improvisers and they go oh yeah <laughs> uh and it, for I think for a lot of people that would be really frustrating but I know my brother I know Mark yeah. and I know my friends and I I said well, actually, this is really fun. And that's what I just kind of learned to let go. And we just kind of had a wild, wacky time with it. And dice rolled when they needed to. And most of the time, we just <laughs> acted like fools. And like that got its hooks in me. And immediately after that, I started hacking the game. Got so it. I started I, I started making uh, a Star Wars version of it because I was really into fantasy, but my my friends and brother weren't big fantasy people, but they all were huge Star Wars nerds. So I was like, OK, I will just read this Dungeon World book and try to map what I can into a Star Wars thing and then fill in the gaps how I need to. So like I made a, a hack for that and we played that and that was a ton of fun. And then I brought on some other friends who didn't want to do Star Wars or fantasy, but they had heard of this thing called Shadowrun, mm-hmm. and we we didn't want to play Shadowrun, so I found somebody else's random, like, homebrew Shadowrun PBTA hack, which, you know, how good was it? Who knows? But right. it worked for us at the time, and we had a great time. So my earliest interactions of actually playing the game are in the pbta space and with a lot of that narrative freedom and but playing with improvisers which leads to like truly just letting go of control and like yep. those concepts of prep being almost completely unimportant uh got again into me very early on so i'm, I'm in hacking i'm in low low to zero prep mode Almost from the get-go from like my actual play and design experience. Did you at any point hear the siren call of crunch or were you always happy in that space as a, as a player, right? Not as a creator. Yeah, I was always happy in the light space. Um, I 
You know, I think honestly, the crunchiest I crunchiest game I ran for the longest time would I would qualify as like Savage Worlds, which mm-hmm. isn't like particularly. It's not a crunchy, crunchy game on the on the spectrum. But like, if you compare it to like a PBTA game, then certainly it'll be. A, a, there's more more cogs in the machine, and so like I. But I didn't really. It was fine for me. Like we didn't play Savage Worlds for very long because it just didn't do what we wanted to do. Um, but I didn't, I didn't have that siren song of what if we added more? And in fact, like my group that I played dungeon world for like three years with, like we played the, we played dungeon world for three years and had a blast with it. And then one of them broke and said, I want to try D and D and I ran it for them. They got into it. I ran it for a little bit more and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I just, I, I did not enjoy playing it at all or running it at all. Right. And so uh, I excused myself from the campaign and they kind of went off and did their own thing. And then I think after that, like in terms of crunch, I did get, and I am still very into blades in the dark, which I think right. is one of those games that a lot of people like their gut is that it's not crunchy, but it is like there, there are so many cogs to that machine. And it just doesn't feel that way because you're not always interacting with them all the time. And so uh, once once the machine of Blades in the Dark gets running, it also kind of runs itself, which is the beauty of it. And so uh, it for me, I didn't even perceive it as crunchy because, again, a lot of the stuff that like all these cogs made sense to me is a lot of them are leaning into fictional positioning yeah. and narrative storytelling and not looking at specific modifiers and measurements and things like that where you get crunched, but instead what kind of makes sense in this scenario and consider all of these things that would describe the fiction that you are in right now. So it never felt crunchy to me, but I acknowledge now afterwards that there certainly is a, a degree of crunch to blades. It's just a different kind of crunch. What I find interesting about that Spencer and I, and, and I've, I've had this conversation a few times is what is crunch, right? Yeah. And and what I what I find interesting is a lot of times I'm thinking people when people say it's crunchy and when it's not crunchy, it has to do with design consistency, mm. right? So when you think about when you think about um, John's game, there there's there's a certain design consistency though. So even though it's got several different subsystems, like even though I've run blades, I don't even know how many times I've played it, how many times there's times where like, you know, oh God, I can't remember how we handled this. Right. Mm. And then we're at the table we'll go, you know, well, let's just do this. We'll look it up later. Right. And you go and look it up and you go, oh shit, we were right. <laughs> and that's <laughs> right. because, you know, there's that consistency to go through it. Whereas sometimes we crunch is actually complicated because there's not this and i don't know the right word for it but you probably have a better sense of what i'm saying here like you make your best guess and you end up being right what is that what am i what am i term am i talking about there you're nodding your head so i think you understand a little bit what i mean well i i i don't have the exact term off the top of my head but i i think i know what you mean in terms of there is there is that sort of consistency across all of blades where I don't know. It is the fact that it's a well-oiled machine and that like the cogs fit so well together one another that if a cog is jammed, it, we just inherently know how to fix it because we understand how the whole machine works. But other games have, I would say exceptions to them. Like the, the degree, the number of exceptions that you need to know in a game where you're like, well, hold on. I, I, 
we're all working under this assumption, but this thing works this way. And if that's not how the game is pitched from the beginning, then it's a roadblock. If it's pitched from the very beginning that you're going to get all these weird, wacky things, which is how I pitch Slayers, then you you go in with that, that preconceived right. notion. But if you all go in thinking these are the rules and then you get all these sort of um, weird twists or exceptions that you have to make, then you're like, I don't understand the game that I'm playing or I have to think a lot more. I I learned, um, so my, my wife is Korean and I was in Korea last month and I had learned before and played again this game called Go Stop. It's a card game. And it is one of the most complicated games I've ever learned in my life. But you eventually figure out the rules. And you figure out the rules and then I'm playing with my father-in-law and some family and it's one situation after another where like, Oh, in this very specific scenario, it's this Calvin rule Ball. that you thought were, it was like, it felt like Calvin Ball. I was like, I swear to God, I think you're making this up as we go. The, the number of exceptions that are in the rules. And so to me, Go Stop is a crunchy game because yep. I have to remember all of these other possible side paths. Like exactly. I know the road I'm on, but there's all these distracting roads that I can't just shut off because I might need them. <laughs> and that's the thing that like for me for crunch is like, how much is your working memory getting taxed during the process of playing this game? And uh, it can get taxed very lightly if you're playing something very consistent and you know it's always going to work the same way. And then it can be, Okay, so wait, how does this spell work again? Because uh, it doesn't work the way that my yeah. 10 other spells I know work. Uh, and oh, sh- oh, shit, there's a chase. Now we got to do the chase rules. Right? Yeah, we got to go flip to the very specific chase rules. Or like Shadowrun has very... I remember reading 5th edition Shadowrun and finding a paragraph on treading water and being like, this is insane. You can't do this. Nobody should do this. <laughs> And just like, I, I can't roll for it. <laughs> yeah, right? Just roll for it. But like having so many, like so many specific scenarios that you need to make a rule for, uh, <laughs> that's crunch. It, it is. And, and it, the, what's interesting to me, especially finding out that you have, you know, experience with war games is, you know, I talk to people and they're like, well, I, that's what I love about role playing, which is like no crime in that, right? Like where you, where you find your kink is great. You know, if you love that aspect of it. And, and I was like, well, why don't I? Right. Because I used to play GURPS, right? Mm. I used to play the hell out of GURPS. <laughs> and then, you know, now, like, I have, like, I get, like, I have no interest in it whatsoever. And I wonder if it is because I get my crunch in war games, right? I get my battle maps in war games. I get my gridded five foot, you know, actions in war games. So I don't want it here. Do you, do you differentiate it that way for yourself? I think that actually, that makes a lot of sense because I play. A, a ton of I don't play war games anymore. But I play a bunch of board games, uh, and I, I range in board games from the really light, don't have to think too much about it, to like the really heavy. We're going to spend the entire day playing this game, and so I think I get that that sense of like rules complexity, and uh, even again allowing the weird like inconsistencies from board games that in. In role-playing games, I want just ease. I just want ease. And I think this is, this is, I mean, this is also something that has just, 
um, changed with me with time. Because, you know, I, like I said, I started and we started playing Dungeon World, which is, a, again, a relatively rules-like game. Um, but we did. I tried to mimic the, the formats of the time, which is like the four-hour session and, yep. like, you know, trying to figure out how to make all that happen. And now, today, for me, like, hour and a half, two hours, that's what I'm shooting for. So I need the game that lets me get the most juice out of two hours of time as opposed to like slowly draining that out of four hours. So um, in my opinion and from my experience, complexity of rules won't do that for me. That will just, that'll slow down the process. So I want it to be stripped away so that we're just in the moment the entire time and we don't have to go, wait, how does this work? Because um, the second you say that, you're out of it and I don't want to be out of it. I love just being in it and immersed in it and completely dissociated from my environment. And uh, so uh, I think, you know, I think that's, I think you're onto something with like finding it somewhere else. Like it's a combination of that. And then just my preferences for what a session looks like have changed with time. And so I, I seek and create rules that mimic that experience. So you're hacking PBTA games, right? Creating all these different things, uh, avoiding Shadowrun like the plague, which is a <laughs> smart move. Uh, it's a running joke on this show. Um, when do you first go, well, wait a second, I'm not just hacking anymore, or I think other people might want to see this. When does that happen? That probably happens. Um, oh, yeah, my like showing other people probably happens like two years into it where I'm I'm trying to make like really really rules light sort of things that um like one pagers or like two pager sort of things that because then I'm exposed to like Grant Howitt and seeing Grant do the one page stuff and just being like well this is he's such I mean, an asshole he's so good a, at what he does right it's just like well, I see this and I go well this is really good and like <laughs> It's one page. And he, it's so he like hand wrote a lot of this. <laughs> and uh, so me immediately thinking, I have to try. I should at least try to do this. Um, and working with my friend, Mike, who is, um, you know, people will know Mike from the layout for the new Slayers update and the Slayers Almanac. He and I are longtime friends. And we, we had been trying to do um, board game design before I got into role-playing game design. So we had already been trying the building a board game and a card game and had been taking them to like prototyping conventions. So I was familiar with the concept of, of trying to create something and right. show it to people. But um, role-playing games was an unknown because at the time I still didn't have a consistent enough group that I could make something and just bring it to them. And my one consistent group just wanted to play our dungeon world campaign. So I was like, okay, so I need, like, I don't have a thing. And I didn't, I didn't know who to show it to for a long time. Um, and it, you know, I was truly kind of just making this for myself and for Mike and just, we would put it out on like drive through under our old publishing name. Cause again, that was the only place I knew. I didn't, I don't know, even know if itch was a thing or if it was, I certainly didn't know about it. Yep. Um, and then the thing that got me going, let's 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 try and make a, a, a I won't say proper game, but a big bigger game, something that goes past the one page is 
seeing zine quest become a thing uh, and uh is specifically zine quest 2 seeing that get announced and like sitting down with mike and going okay what would it realistically take to make something that is 30 pages long like what would we need like what would what would be required to pull that off and that would you know that was the impetus for if i'm gonna try it this is the opportunity to try doing it and uh so that was that was the thing where that was the the event so to speak that was i will now try to design something that is a complete game that i will try and get out in front of the world because there is a specific support structure yep. that will allow me to do it in a way that it's not me just throwing it into the void and going here's my 30 page game and then it falling into the chasm of of the void and never being seen well, it, and it also comes with deadlines and that that structure, too. And that's got to help. I love a deadline <laughs> so much. My biggest struggle in grad school was that in in my, my doctoral program, there aren't deadlines. It's just you get it done when you get it done. And like your your advisor will push you along. But like, it's not like you must have this done by this day or this year. It's just kind of like, yeah, when you get your master's done, cool. And then when your master's is done, you go work on the PhD. And it's like, okay, that's, that seems kind of loose, but let's do this thing. And so if I had deadlines, <laughs> I right. got things done. And when I didn't have deadlines, when my, when my advisor was like, yeah, go ahead and work on this, that never got worked on. Yeah. It just didn't happen. So I, I, I love deadlines. I need, I need them. And so... And having those restrictions and saying, like, it yep. has to be this size, this many pages, this, you know. Now I don't like that. Uh, I don't like that zine quest exists to, like, define what a zine is. Like, I, I now am not a big fan of that. But at the time, it was a necessary degree of constraint that allowed me to go, okay, I have to do this in this format in this amount of time. And I, there's a specific structure that I can submit this to that will support it. Uh, let's let's go for it. Now, you, did you guys put something out for Zine Two? So yeah, that's when my first game, Score, came out. And so Score was my first game. It was uh, it's a system that I made entirely on my own, so it's not a hack of anything. Um, it's the system is inspired by, in some ways, uh, the end of the world role playing games, which. I don't, not a lot of people are familiar with it. Yeah. They're a fantasy flight game, and it's one of my favorite role-playing games. It is my number one way to introduce people to RPGs because you play yourself, play yourself. That's right. in the apocalypse. Right, so right, it's right. so easy to go, what would you do in this scenario? And somebody to go, huh, what would I do? And they don't have to pretend. They don't have to have a voice. They don't have to have a name that's not their name. Um and it has sort of this like dueling um, dice pool thing. And so I use that uh, for score, which is a game about heists and crime. And so I had kind of like a crime die and a heat like bad die and the meter. You know, I was still inspired by like clocks and stuff from other games. And I was like, yeah, so like you'll have a clock for tracking the heat of the, uh, the, the, the job. And then... As everybody knows, I'm heavily inspired by video games. I had also been playing like 500 hours of Payday 2 at that time. So I was like, yeah, what if I just took Payday and turned it into a role-playing game? And so it's a lot of things all kind of coming together to make uh, score. And so, yeah, that was released in Zine Quest 2. That was my first big game, you know, big, you know, past the one page. Yep. The, my first thing um, that was... Uh, 
you know, I, I had, again, dabbled with, like, the one-pagers and making my own, like, little mini systems, but this was, like, a full, like, there's a... The, this now supports everything that I think you need for playing this game. Uh, and the wild thing is that game got any uh, nominated for best rules, which is like, <laughs> like that messed me up because it's my first game and getting any nominated for best rules. I'm like, huh, that's weird. Stop now. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess my weird pool system thing that I thought was kind of a rep reflection of payday and other things worked um and so then i was like yeah okay i think i i think i'm good at this uh so let's keep let's keep it up let's let's keep going so you guys turn in score right you hit your deadline you put it out there what was easier than you thought it would be and what was harder so it's the first time you guys have done it inside that type of structure it's it's closed you submit it you're done with it yeah you sit back you have a glass of whiskey or a cup of coffee and you say wow that, that was harder than i thought because of this or that was easier than i thought because of this what was easy what was hard uh easy for me at the time was writing uh writing the game was easy to me um once I had my rules settled, the designing of the rules was hard um, for me because it was still early on where like concepts, like just general concepts about mechanics that I understand today weren't right. there. So like I, my earliest iterations of score were absolute garbage because I was just trying to do a bunch of like trying to be weird or unique for the sake of being weird or unique, right. which um, I've talked about this with other people before where like, I don't think that's a good approach of, of design. Like you, yes, I understand like the desire for your game to, to be different, but to make your rules different for the sake of them being different, as opposed to the rules supporting what you are trying to accomplish with that game. Um, so my early iterations were just, they were bad because <laughs> I just wanted, I was like, what if I did these weird like things where you like add and subtract these things. And then you like, you know, you set aside this middle die. And I was like, what am I doing? It doesn't make any sense. And at that point you could have made a huge career designing board games for fantasy flight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, Cause Lord, I, there's some of their stuff I like, but I'll pull out a fantasy flight game and I'll go, what the hell? Like, well, they, they, they do that all the time. Exactly. And at the time, again, Mike and I were still trying to do the designing board game thing. So I was right. like neck deep in like, what if we did these weird things with our board games and I can't translate them to the role playing game space. And so like that, that was very hard yeah. to like, just learn to like find the rules that fit the the, the thing that the stories that I was trying to tell yep. with the game, that was hard to to get to that. But once I had it, it just falls out of my head. So like mm -hmm. once it's there, the, 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 the bones are there. Putting the meat on the skeleton is is easy for me. Right. Um, so and then the other hard thing was distribution because I had never done anything like that before. And, you know. Thankfully, it was a like I didn't have a ton of backers, so I didn't have to ship out hundreds and hundreds of copies right. of score because if I did, that would have been really confusing for me. <laughs> uh, so just like trying to figure out like, OK, how do you print a bunch of labels and where do you drop? Do I just bring these to the post office? Do I, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, you know, cause it, I didn't know any of that. And I, yeah. I didn't, uh, I was, you know, I, I had at that point, no designer friends from the indie space because that was my emerging into the space in the first place. 
And so I didn't know anybody. So I, and I, so I wasn't comfortable enough being like, Hey friend, who's also doing a zine quest. Um, how do you plan on putting these in the mailbox? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so that, that was hard. And that was, I mean, that honestly was hard for me for a while. I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's easier now. I won't, I still won't say it's easy. I don't think distribution is easy at all, but, uh, it's easier now for me. So when I go grab my copy of score and I look at it, where am I going to see Mike's fingerprints? So we keep talking about him, but I don't have a sense of where where he's involved or where where I can find him in score. The entire layout is Mike. Oh, wow. So Mike is a is a is a graphic designer uh, and an artist. And so Mike did the layout for art uh, layout for score. I don't have a copy handy just to like show it to you. But like Mike. When Mike does layout, uh, like creative layout, he does he goes all out. He's That's cool. He just not like all out like Morkborg, like maximalist right. sort of thing, but like just like there's a lot of stuff going on on the page. That's but it's not there to distract you. And like there's a lot of really clever and subtle things that Mike does to like get you to the information that you need. He's he's That's incredibly cool. good at graphic design. Um, and so he did the entirety of the layout of it. And then, uh, I had a couple of artists who did the cover art and the character art. And, you know, he found a way to weave that stuff really well into the book so that like, especially the character art, it's not just like plastered in there with some text around it. Like it's like you're, there's like a dossier on each of the criminals and it's like their photo on like a paper. And I'm like, Mike, this is so good. Uh, I would have just put like, here's the whole piece of art on this page and here's a bunch of text about them on the other page. Um, so yeah, Mike is the one that like score looks really cool and yeah. it looks cool because of that. And, and we followed zine quest rules of black and white, which not a lot of people do. I have now learned after the fact. So he made, he did an incredible job with just black, white, and gray. And, um, now, you know, I've got slayers here in my hands and just seeing what I know he can do when he has color. It's just, it's real good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so speaking of slayers, what we're going to do real quick, the insider insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I tried to understand their process inspiration and the methods for crafting their creations and that's what we're going to do with spencer today so we're going to take a quick break when we get back from this break we're going to talk about the game that really put spencer on my radar we're going to talk about slayers i'll be right back if you're an athlete you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down after all a team is only as good as its weakest link So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Are you a tabletop RPG player that is considering becoming a game master? Are you a veteran GM that is always looking for different ways to improve your games? GM Mastermind is an RPG podcast that tackles topics catering to the art of game mastering. But Craig, there are a lot of RPG podcasts that do that. Perhaps. But GM Mastermind has the brain trust. 
It's a guest panel made up of two to three game masters from different backgrounds and experiences that share their personal insights on a particular topic. This keeps the conversation fresh, diverse, and insightful from one episode to the next. So head over to gmmastermind.com or subscribe to GM Mastermind wherever you find your favorite podcasts. All right, so it's confession time. Um, I knew nothing about score, um, and I don't. You know what? I do know. I got Slayers in a bundle. Uh, but well, humble bumble. There's like seventy five thousand games in it, right? And um, added to my uh, PDFs, and for and I was going through, and I was like, you know what? I, I, I want to grab a game, and I actually wanted to do like a first look on on the Twitch stream. So I was flipping through all my different folders where I've got stuff and I I see Slayers. I open it up and to credit to who we were just talking about to Chris, I was like, oh, shit, like this looks a lot different than the other ones I've been opening up. Right. (laughs) So immediately I'm drawn in. Um, I start flipping through it um, before I'm going live and I'm going, "Okay, okay, all right. (laughs) You know, I'm starting to like, okay. And what's funny about it for me, and we're going to talk about so people know that aren't familiar with it, but what was funny about me is if if somebody had come up to me and explained that game to me, I wouldn't have opened it. (laughs) If someone said to me, all right, so Craig, here's the deal. You got all these different, you know, classes, right? You can play at this, you can play at that. Each of them plays differently. They have a different set of rules. And I'm like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> I'm all right. <laughs> right. Learning one set of rules, that's 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 where I am. Learning eight sets of rules for one game, no thank you. Um, thankfully, that, that's not how it unfolded. So for those of you that are not familiar with Slayers, it's a tabletop role-playing game of mercenaries and monster hunters for hire. Known by locals as Slayers. Players wander a haunted city cursed long ago to expand towards the horizon forever. Slayers help clean out the monsters that infest the alleyways and shadows and those that the city seem to be manifesting on its own. And if you go watch that live stream of my first look, you can and I've watched back uh, to get ready for this. You can see like my wheels as I'm doing it. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, it's very funny to watch. But I want to before we dive into it, I want to go back to the day before Slayers doesn't exist. Right. So there's no concept of it. And you wake up that morning. And if if I were to go to the to the Campbell Museum and look at the first exhibit for Slayers, where was the first acorn? Uh, it is in two other games that I was designing okay. at the time. So um, at the time I was, um, you know, I this is a few months now after score had been out and I had had a lot of fun with that. And I was I was thinking, OK, let's let's keep this up. And I was trying to design a a game that mimicked um, like 2D fighting games. Mm. I'm not good at them at all. I'm actually truly horrible at them. I'm a button basher, but I enjoy I enjoy them from time to time. And the concepts of like a um, combos, you know, getting combos in those games and um, 
and, and, and when you could pull that off, it, it being a really cool thing. You know, I, I saw like I see the similarity in like a build order that goes off exactly the, the timing it's supposed to and going, like, ah, OK, I get why being really good at vi- uh, fighting games is not just mashing buttons. It's yeah. it's, it's something totally different. And yeah. so I like the idea of, of combo fighting and things like that. I was trying to find a way to do it. And so I naturally was drawn to this concept of exploding dice as a mechanism for maintaining momentum in a fight. So that concept existed as its own separate thing. And then separate from that was trying to create a gunslinger game where I had this concept of you have, it's a six shooter. So you have six dice that are your bullets and you are, managing them in fact i had i released a game about that concept before slayers even existed as just like a one page thing and so um like that that idea just that was so stuck in my head and i was trying to work on both of these things separately and both not giving either of them enough energy to make them happen and just running into a number of of roadblocks where i was like i just can't figure this out like i can't figure out either of them that I like had that wild moment, that peanut butter jelly, that peanut butter chocolate moment where you're like, wait a minute, what if I just smashed these things together? Could it work? And that's when Slayers became a thing. That's when I took that concept of, okay, so what if I did try to take a bunch of these disparate ideas that I have and just bring them into one thing? How do I unify them um, what does that look like? Right. And that, so the origin, the, the acorn is two separate games that were driving me mad that I eventually figured out what I can just smash these things together. So was everything at that point mechanical for you or was the because I mean, part of what makes the world of Slayers is really cool. Right. And the setting that you've put together around it. And what I don't get a sense of is was that brewing as well or did that come after is the blanket over once over the concept? When does that come into play? That definitely came later. The concept of like the the world of Slayers and the, the, the coat of paint that went over it was something that came after the fact uh, because I just, first of all, had to figure out how do you take two different rule systems and smash them together? And I knew it was possible. And people have talked, heard me talk about this all the time because of Root, the board game. One of my favorite board games is, and it's to me, the gold standard of asymmetry in a game. I, I, I played Root and I, I saw Root and I saw, okay, This game lets you play four, and now like way more than four, but at the time, four factions that are so different in how they play, yet we're all at the same board, we're all trying to get 30 victory points, but we're trying to get those points in just wildly different ways. So I knew that it worked with board games, and and again, since I had come from board games and had tried the board game thing with my role-playing games, I knew it, it... in theory, would work with a role-playing right. game, just from a mechanical perspective. So the the biggest struggles early on were figuring out what that looked like. And there were many iterations of those rules before it eventually became what it became. And once I got there, then I could start thinking, okay, why am I doing this? Like, like what, right. what do these different mechanisms represent then? And that's how the world and the theme started to emerge. 
So I would assume Gunslinger was one of the early ones, right? Considering uh, that was the peanut butter of the sandwich. What what was next for you? So what was the next? Um, I don't like calling it. They're not subsystems. I don't know. They're really effing clever is what they are, <laughs> but I don't know what the hell to call them. Because and here's why, Spencer, is because there are they are different, but they end up at the same place. And I love your root analogy because that's what Slayers feels like is we're all doing things differently, but we all end up on the same board. Right. Um, so so what was the next what was after the gunslinger? The blade was the the blade and the gunslinger kind of came up together because the blade came from my 2D fighter combo thing with exploding dice and right. then the gunslinger was already sort of a, a concept that was brewing. And then, so then it's like, okay, if, if this exploding dice thing was couched in the concept of like a martial arts game or a fighting game, like what is a, a character like that? Why are they with this gunslinger? Because the six dice was going to be a gunslinger no matter what. Like I wasn't going to turn it into, oh, these are your six whatever like, yeah like it's just it, like it's a six shooter it these are your bullets so you know the 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 blade sort of just kind of came out of okay this was coming from fighting game space but i don't want this to be a fighting game character who else can kind of capture that combo essence and i'm a big um devil may cry fan I just there again, not a game I'm very good at, but right. I enjoy the concept of it. And when you get the combos going in Devil May Cry, it's the coolest feeling in the world. You truly feel very, very cool. And so stylish blade fighting was a thing that I had seen before in Devil May Cry and a whole host of other things. And I said, OK, so I'm going to just it has to be a blade fighter and a gunslinger. Why are they together? And then that's, again, where it starts to like, OK, what 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 could these two possibly be doing together? And it kind of started to emerge from there. When you finally kind of settled on your group of hunters um, and at least had the core of how each of them was going to function, um, when you sit back and look at all your children that you love the same, who do you love a little bit more? The tactician. Wh- which one? Oh, okay, good. Easy. I was hoping you'd say that. Easy. It's so, so easy. Explain it real quick to people because that was mine. So, oh, it makes me so happy. Can you explain that to people, how, how he works or she works or they work? Absolutely. So to preface this, I am uh, I'm a support player in things. I like I like playing support. So. I wanted to create a support character that was more than I heal you this round. I heal you this round. I heal you this round. I wanted to create something that was a little bit different than that. And so the tactician, um, at the start of every fight, they roll a pool of dice and they keep those dice set aside with the roll as it is. And throughout the fight, at any point, at any time, an enemy or an ally rolls a die they can replace that die with one of their rolled dice from their pool. You know, if you need a, a, a D&D equivalent, think of like divination sort of concepts where you're like you, ha- you can kind of like save a, a die roll to use at some point, but it's a whole bunch of them and you're doing yeah. it for like enemies and allies. And, you know, the, you know, you think about it and the Slayers is all built around this concept of any die that's a four or above, regardless if it's a D4, D6, D8, etc., is a success. You're rolling this big pool of dice, which means you're going to have a pile of successes and failures. And so now you're thinking, well, now I can move these failures onto my enemies and these successes onto my allies. And you're you're thinking, like, when is the moment I need to give my ally? I've only got one success left. I've got three failures. So when am yep. I going to spend this success? 
And then you start to figure out like, oh, you can use this with the blade and get them to start exploding dice. Or you can use it with the gunslinger and make sure that they hit with that ruined bullet that really like it knocks the enemy out in a way that they hadn't before. Give it to the arcanist on their boosted die. And now you get the huge boost effect out of it. Um, I think the tactician is a really fun support class and and is not a I'm going to heal you or I'm going to tank the damage for you sort of support class, but a I am the conductor of the orchestra that is this fight. So the die pool thing I thought was really neat, especially when I realized that you'll use every die. Right. And because that was big. Right. Because a lot of times die pools, you roll a bunch of dice and then up, some of them go away. Right. Whereas with him, you roll a bunch of dice and you're going to use all of them. The other part that I thought was very interesting is the um, kind of the implicit thing of, well, how? Right. So if I give you this six gunslinger, how did the tactician mm-hmm. make that happen? And that's really where I'm like, oh, you could just build some incredible fiction in that. Yeah, because, you know, there's an, an inherent assumption that the, the tactician has done something either in that moment to help you, like, dodge the attack from the enemy when you give the enemy a bad uh, die or help you hit that, you know, hit that die because they, they tell you, actually, you know, aim left uh, or or you play with a weird assumption that they prepped you ahead of time for this fight. And in fact... What you're not seeing, like what you're seeing is like the first role is the alternative timeline where the tactician didn't train you ahead of time. But we live in the timeline where the tactician did train you. And so you are hitting that shot because the tactician (laughs) prepared you for this kind of thing. And you can kind of play with it in, you know, both ways. And I think that's a lot of a lot of fun. So um, as I talk to designers, one of the things that I keep hearing and I want to know if this happened with you and Slayers is. Um, a lot of times it's about four fifths of the way through the process. I hear about, um, then we added this or then we took this away and it all made sense. Right. Um, did that happen with slayers? Was there something that you added towards the end of the process or something you took away at the beginning of the process that made all the Legos fit? Yeah. So the, the rule of four is the reason slayers is good. And the, the concept is again, that if any die that rolls a four plus is a hit, that was not the original intent of the game. Um, the original intent of the game was using the equivalent of like AC. So having target values on enemies that you could get by exploding your dice and adding them up or rolling all of the gunslingers bullets and adding them up to see if they hit the AC of the enemy. And so trying to come up with ways that were interesting that worked with that AC format, because that was, I was looking at the dragon game, even though I didn't play it and going, okay, that's kind of, if this is a, this is a combat game, I should look at the other game out there that people play for combat. And, um, that I, you know, I, I kept having trouble with that. And then I tried another thing where AC was, uh, variable. So your, your AC mm. equaled your initiative score because it, it represented how quick and ready you were for the fight. So somebody who was faster in the initiative order was also harder to hit because they were more battle ready, battle prepped. Right. And, and so a lot of the game was focused on trying to move people around in the turn order, slowing people down or moving mm. yourself to a more advantageous position, which meant you were also like 
the GM had to track a constantly changing turn order and like figure out like what is this person's AC right now again? Uh, oh, it's not seven anymore. It's actually five. Uh, and so it that was I think that's a really cool idea that I just yep. couldn't figure out and and I couldn't figure it out at the time. And so. But I for a long time, Slayers was stalled on this idea of how do I make a combat game where you are trying to hit the armor class value of whoever it is that you are trying to attack and deal variable damage and everything like that. Because I was looking at D&D because right. it made sense at the time. And so uh, when I when I eventually shed that and realized I, you know, when I when I studied Root again, I was like, why does Root work? Everybody's doing something different. They all want one thing, though. They all want victory points. So, OK, so everybody in Slayers needs to want one thing. They oh want God. this number. It doesn't matter what you're doing anymore. They want four or more. And that's it. And then it kind of just started to, it started to come to. And then it, then it was again one of those things where it fell out of my head very, very quickly. So, and you can tell me, Craig, uh, you're way off on this, but the other thing that I, as I started to digest Slayers, is I got a whiff of Savage Worlds. Oh yeah, and, and, and is that accurate? Yeah, totally. In terms of like the the skill system with uh, different dice representing how um, adept you are at skills. And then, of course, like, you know, we see uh, Savage Worlds is the game that's most, you know, that's the one we associate with the concept of exploding dice, right? That's a big part of it. So uh, and the four plus. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So like there's definitely I had played Savage World. I had tried to run it with friends and didn't ultimately enjoy my experience with it. So, how you know, that's in my head as like, I know the concept of this, like some of these bones are good bones. How do I, how do I make them fit the kind of game that I want to play? And so, yeah, there's absolutely Savage Worlds DNA in, in Slayers. So, um, I was, uh, giddy like a teenager, um, when you announced that we we're going to have a Slayers 1.5, because one of the <laughs> things that I am angry about is that I've only got a PDF of Slayers mm. and I'm obsessive about having books. So I find out not only am I going to be able to get a book of Slayers, but we've got a 1.5 and I don't know if we're in a position where we can talk about what happens between one and 1.5, but oh. I'm dying to know. Yeah, there's a lot of cool, uh, changes with, I mean, there's, there's the art and layout. So like it, it now has the Mike Riemann touch. And now it looks amazing. Uh, it's, it's so good. Mike is so good at what he does. So uh, first of all, it just looks great. Um, also part of that layout change, because there's, there's text change, but there's not like substantial new additions or anything like that. But um, what Mike was allowed to do, and this is a kind of a peek behind the curtain, is he was I gave him free reign to make the book as long as it needed to be. Um, and so the book clocks in at just about 100 pages when the original is 60 pages yeah. and 60 was very intentional. And this goes back to why uh, my story about distribution being hard. Um, when I was trying to figure out how much to charge for shipping for Slayers, I was using the printer's like estimate of how much the books would cost or how much they would weigh and use that as a, okay, so if, if the book weighs this much, then this is how much I should charge for shipping. And that estimate was wrong. But 
I, I was working under the estimate of it's got to be 60 pages. It can't be more than 60 pages. Once it's more than 60 pages, it bumps up into the next weight limit. And anybody who's ever shipped uh, out of the U.S. internationally knows that you can go from essentially $12 to $24 with one ounce difference. And uh, that's what happened to me. So, but I, I had, so I, I, I took a huge wash on Slayers because of shipping. So again, I've since learned my, <laughs> my lesson, charge for shipping afterwards and <laughs> don't include it in your Kickstarter uh, and a lot of other things. But the book was very intentionally 60 pages because that was where I was going to be able to do it. So the, the original book feels, it feels, um, too blocky, like there's too many like big walls of text and things like that. It, yep. it wasn't allowed to breathe the way that I want the book right to breathe. To so just right away, you're going to see that the book looks better, not only in terms of art and the layout that Mike did, but now you're just you're not going to feel like you're like, whoo, this is a big page I'm about to read. You can you can breathe with the book, which is good. That um, is good. But in terms of uh, mechanical changes, so all of the classes get a ready action now. Um, some of the classes already had this. They were kind of baked in. So like the gunslinger put their six bullets down in front of them and the tactician rolled a pool of dice, but the blade didn't do anything and the arcanist didn't do anything. And so I kind of codified it and said, everybody gets a ready action. It's this specific thing that gets you ready. And so like now the blade starts in a stance. Before you didn't start in a stance. You had to use a whole action to go into it. And the arcanist gets to pick a favored spell and they don't mark corruption when they use that spell for the fight. So you're, you're, they, it brings them in line with sort of how cool. the other two are functioning. On top of that, just a real simple change for, uh, for everybody across the board in combat is everybody gets to move for free during combat. So you get two actions and a move because before you almost certainly were always using one of your two actions to move and then you almost always certainly used your attack action for your other thing. And so... There wasn't a lot of thinking, when do I want to use the quick action? And then really never thinking about using any of the skills during combat. But now you have that that room to breathe again of like, okay, I know I get to move. What two things do I want to do? I can attack, I can do my quick action, or I can do a skill action. And what I'm trying to get people to do is use the skill actions more because I right. want that to be a thing that you go like, Now's the time for me to roll stealth and try and like disappear out of the, you know, or, or agile and like suddenly get a, a advantageous position on the rooftop. And before you would never do that because that would be yeah. your entire turn and that would not be fun. So um, that's there. Like those are so there's a lot of quality of life changes that just they speed up combat. They make combat more fun for players um, and you see it both at like those those wider things like the everybody gets to move everybody gets a, a ready action and then there's small tinkering with all of the classes to make them more fun too like for example the gunslinger i've removed the trigger limit which like said you're only allowed to fire this many bullets i was like if you want you can fire all six at once you also now have no bullets and you're gonna have right. to spend a lot of time reloading but you can do that now um what you know take that shackle off and just let the gunslinger if they truly want to just unload and also the gunslinger all their bullets do two damage now because they just were not hurting people as much as the blade and i was like 
the gunslingers should be hurting people a lot more than they are. So, you know, it's, a, it's those small, small quality of life changes, both like for at the individual class level and at the wider scale for uh, making combat a faster and more exciting thing. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's going back through the districts and tightening up the NPCs and the rumors so that they like, they're nice. truly hooks that are ready to get you going. It's going through those hunts and really making sure that the three pre-written hunts are like, you could, you could do zero prep and be ready to just like play slayers right out of the book with, with that sort of thing. Um, you know, going back through my GM advice and updating some things based off of how I've sort of, you know, shifted since the two years it was released uh, or just like further emphasizing points that I don't I didn't emphasize enough before. Um, so, yeah, it's it's it, that's why I call it one point five, because it's not a it's not a second edition. I haven't said, right. like, I'm going to scrap the rule of four and to- take this in a totally different direction. It's I I'm going to rough i'm gonna sand out all those rough edges and make kind of like the definitive version of this game now that i've got a couple more years of design experience in me very very cool so guys what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a quick break when we get back from this break we're gonna talk about nova but almost as importantly we're gonna talk about the lumen system we'll be right back Hello friends, and welcome to the Writer's Room, where you can find all sorts of adventures, antics, and escapades for the 7th C TTRPG. I'm Zoe Jackson. I'm Evan Ackley. And I am Patrick Keefe. And we are here to tell you the stories of 7th C. If you enjoy actual play podcasts featuring adventure, drama, and swashbuckling heroism using music and dynamic sound effects, then you've come to the right place. Not only do we bring you stories from our 7th C gameplay, we also discuss the mechanics of the game in special episodes called Notes with the Narrator. To learn more, our Linktree link will be in the bio, and that will help you find us on your favorite podcatcher, as well as support us through our many different platforms. Won't you join us? So here's another confession. Um, I did not know about Lumen until I heard about Hedge, right? Mm-hmm. So I've um, uh, have picked up very, very lucky to have two friends in the Drakes and came across Hedge. And I was like, oh, this is a very interesting game. And then I saw the little tag on it that said Lumen. Um, so let's start there, um, which is for those listening, let's explain what the Lumen system is. And then I want to figure out how it, how it came to be. Hedge is so good. <laughs> it's it's really good. So I'm using good. it to teach a class at the end of this month. That I'm super is excited. Awesome. That's so good. I love that. I when they when I saw the Drakes make hedge, I went oh, this, exactly as I prophesized. People would make cooler things with Lumen than I ever would, and I was like, it has happened. Good, excellent. <laughs> hedge is it's amazing. Everybody needs to go buy it. Um. So Lumen is a it's a rule system that I created to emulate the sort of um, power fantasy vibes that you get from character based games like looter shooters or, you know, you can even look at MOBAs as an inspiration or games like 
Um, so like some of my touchstones that I always talk about are things like Destiny, Overwatch, Diablo, those games where you are a character that has got like three, four, five powers that you kind of just always are spamming and using and you feel very cool and powerful as you're doing those things because they come from video games where you were designed to to do that. And so Lumen was me, again, looking at video games as a huge inspiration and going, how do I bring that to the tabletop experience in a way that uh, fits the, the sort of vibe that I like, which is rules light, get it going right away. Um, the player's constantly feeling cool because that that going back to that origin story, right? I played yeah. with improvisers who always made sure their characters were entertaining. So I was like, players need to feel like they are entertaining and awesome all the time. That because it's such a good vibe. And so Lumen was a, a, a system that I created that tried to capture that that concept. So uh, same thing with, that we talked about with Slayer. So where was the acorn, right? So I get a sense of the touchstones, but when did you decide, I want to create a system that emulates that? When does that happen? So the earliest, the earliest thing you would see would be my game Light, which uh, is my love letter to Destiny. I created Light in like 48 hours. It was just a two-page game in its earliest iteration. It was one of those things where I, I had to get a Destiny game on the page because it was just, I'm obsessed with Destiny and I, it, had to, it had to exist. And it had to exist in a way that I could convince somebody like my cousin who was also super obsessed with Destiny to consider playing the game. And I know that my cousin would not want to play a PBTA game. He wouldn't right. want to play Slayers. Those aren't, the, that's not the thing that would do it for him. But a game where he's got to keep track of like three numbers and then he's got a bunch of powers and he gets to just keep doing, he gets to keep pushing the cool, do cool shit button over and over and over again. That's the thing, that's the kind of game that he would play. So I, I Light emerges and it's, it is the earliest iteration of Lumen. It's still missing features that would eventually become part of Lumen, but it was my it was the thing that would kind of get built up into it. Um, it. So that exists. Then I try to make a game called Frame, uh, and it's my Warframe love letter. Put it to Kickstarter. Immediately harassed off of Kickstarter. I get this huge hate campaign thrown my way. Uh, the can the Kickstarter is canceled after five hours because the Warframe fans are furious that I've made a game that looks like Warframe. Well, so I, I so I'm not familiar with Warframe. So what is Warframe? <laughs> Warframe is a looter shooter. Um, it's a free to play uh, looter shooter that's uh, I used to play it all the time. <laughs> it's very fun. Um, it takes that same concept of like the push the cool shit button and like you're doing it all the time in that like my my biggest gripe in destiny is that you don't get to use your power power things that are your classes nearly as often as i think you should like if i'm a warlock i should feel like a space wizard all the time right um and i you don't get to do that but in warframe you do that you're you are a class that has four powers centered around an archetype and you feel like that archetype um and it's like said in the it's a sci-fi future you're like robot space ninjas essentially got it so you put this you put this game up on kickstarter mm. and then these fans come out of nowhere and 
Yeah, yeah. I, I'm really sorry. Angry. I'm not familiar with this happening, Spencer. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. The 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 frame, yeah, the frame debacle was a whole thing. I had a whole the whole game was written. Uh, I had commissioned art and and everything, and we the Kickstarter started in an hour into it. Basically, on every social media platform that I existed on, I had gamers uh, coming at me furious that this thing looked like the looks like Warframe. Uh, so it was that kind of like um, that fandom that just desperately uh, defends an IP because they think that IP will fuck them if they do it uh, sort of idea. And so uh, it was it was a nightmare. And like five hours in, I think I, you know, I had already reached out to a few folks for advice about it. And a lot of people were like, I don't know. Can you can you sit through this for two weeks? Can you you know if you can if you can sit through it, then just sit through it. Um, and uh, but if you can't, you should cancel it. And you know Damn. that's okay to to take care of yourself. And so I was really thankful to have a lot of people around who 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 gave me that advice. And so yeah, after about I think like five hours into the campaign, I I canceled it and I just I disappeared for like oh like a, a number of days uh, and. Uh, I ended up doing like a, an interview with Dicebreaker and talking about toxic fandoms. And uh, so I, I like that was my moment where I was like, well, I'm done doing game design. This sucks. Jesus. This is this is this is really ridiculous. Um, so <laughs> so but I, I, I can't imagine the emotion behind that in that five hour process for you. It was horrible. I, I mean, I was having I panic bet. attacks on my on my kitchen floor and my partner didn't really know how to like I mean, she was helping you know but like total like me trying to explain why i was having a panic attack she's like i don't understand what what is happening right now um so but i had made i had written the whole thing and the whole thing was based off of light and me adding now taking light knowing that it was is it worked as a two-page concept and building on it to okay what else do you need in order to play a full looter shooter game and i had made all of these things and I wasn't going to use them. So I'm a being made of spite and rage. And so I, I, I stripped away all of the, the, the flavor. I stripped away all of the theme and everything. And I said, this is the, the, these are the bones. This is how the game works. Uh, I'm going to make a rule set that anybody can use to make this exact type of game so that we can do it for all of these games uh we're gonna piss them all and off. if everybody does it <laughs> then what are you gonna do <laughs> uh so I, I mean i i truly like lumen came out of a, a place of anger and and rage and um and 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 frustration knowing that i had made something very fucking cool and wasn't yeah. going to be able to release it um and so I made Lumen as the system and I wrote it in a way that was very different than SRDs are typically written. And I, I call it an SRD, but I, I don't think SRD is the right word. I've, I've since, I call it like a creator uh, kit or something like that. It's a, it's a toolbox. In fact, looking at um, the resistance system that Grant Howard and, and, and um, Chris Taylor did, uh, they made a, a, a resistance toolkit. And that was heavily inspirational for me in terms of how I wrote Lumen, which is this is going to just read like I'm sitting down across the table from you and talking to you about what I think this 
system does, what it does well, what it doesn't do well. It's not a technical document. It's not an SRD. You, you can't copy and paste this and put it into a Word doc and have a game. You don't have a game if you do that. You have me talking at you. <laughs> um, but I, I've given you my design philosophy. I've given you my reason for why this is designed the way it's designed, what I think it can do, and inevitably being proven completely wrong with like all the looming games that have come out that do it in totally different ways, which is the coolest feeling in the world. I bet. Like, and it's really funny. Like one person after another would come up to me like, Hey Spencer, um, I'm making a looming game, but I decided to do this. Like, I mean, I'm not doing X. I'm going to do Y. And I'm like, that sounds great. I wouldn't have thought of that. And I'm glad you thought of that. And like everybody who breaks lumen is doing it the right way. Like they're, 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 they're making it, what it needs to be to fit their game. Um, so that that became this this system then that I I now had I had stripped away what was frame and I had now a system that I could make my own thing. And after about like a month, month and a half after the frame thing, I was ready to try and <laughs> reframe frame and and take it in a different direction to to make it a different thing but still using the same system because i knew i knew in my heart that the system was good um and i just so what was next so next was trying to iterate like what is the the setting for this because again it's going to be the power fantasy thing it's going to be um you know people going out on missions and having like four powers and they're really good at these powers and they're awesome and badass but what is that going to be and trying to figure out what that would look like and you know, frame being a game that comes from sci-fi, I was still very much in that like, well, something sci-fi mode. I, I hadn't even considered like, what if I just made this fantasy? Uh, I and, and like now today, I'm finally working on Lumen Fantasy. Like years later, where I was like, oh yeah, I should probably make a fantasy version of this. <laughs> um, so my early iterations were trying to make like um, like a Magitech sort of setting. Because uh, I think Magitech is cool. I actually don't, I have not played many games where it's like, it's actually a thing, which would have been a boon to me so that I wouldn't have so like tried to mimic a specific game, but I would have tried to mimic a, a vibe of a genre. And I I worked on that concept for a while. And then I remembered a setting that Mike Riemann and I had come up with years ago. So the there's the 200 word RPG challenge that comes out like mm -hmm. every year and there's a theme and the theme was for the year that he and I wrote something was the sun is dead and we uh, we came up with a, a game about immortal beings who were imbued by the last remnants of a dead sun and how you would slowly shift from a being of light to a being of shadow with time and it but we had built like it's a 200 word game. So it's, there's not a lot there, but he and I spent so much time just like sitting around drinking coffee on like a Sunday morning. And like, what would it be like though? If there was yeah. no sun, like what would it, what would that be? And he and I did a lot of this like world building and it was built more in a, like an more of a fantasy vibe and like almost like steam. There was like elements of like steampunk in our early stuff but we had this concept of the sun explodes and there's shards of sunlight on the planet. And that's a thing that is cool. But it was very much of this realm of 
And you are these immortal fantasy beings who will shift from light beings to dark beings through time. And like you will die a lot and in your death you will change. And so that the, all that we did, we did hours and hours of world building for a 200 word RPG because <laughs> um, that's who Mike and I are. Uh, and I remembered and the, the game was called Dim, D-I-M, because your character would become dim with time. And I remembered that world and I thought, OK, that concept of shards of the sun in the planet, let's take that and put it in a different, not in a fantasy world where, you know, you are the the sun knight or the, you know, the shadow wizard or anything like that. But in a side, like, what would we do if we did try to harness the power of the sun from any kind of science, like, you know, very hand wavy scientific perspective? And, you know, <laughs> thinking about things like Dyson spheres and like the like when you have a Dyson sphere, the, how technology would just explode in terms of what you're capable of doing and so then thinking like okay so we're gonna make some real cool robots <laughs> that you can make <laughs> with this technology and so that then is where the concept of you are pilots of these exosuit mech robot things that are powered by literal pieces of the sun in a world where the sun exploded and you live in cities surround that are built around giant shards of sunlight. Um, so, uh, and in case anybody's wondering, yes, I did check in with Mike to see if he was okay with this and he gave me the full blessing. So I didn't, I didn't go back and like stab Mike in the back. <laughs> he and I are very good friends. Of course I checked with him. Um, but no, he thought that was, he, you know, once I started telling him the direction I was interested in taking the, the dim world, he was super, on board and said, yeah, go, go nuts with it. Have so much fun. And, um, so it's been really fun making Nova what it is because it, it finally, it, it's been a while. It had been a while since I felt it. If I had made a world that was, that was mine, that wasn't like based off of something else, right? Score based off of payday light based off of, um, destiny frame based off of Warframe. So like, you know, I was really good at making video game homages, but I hadn't done a thing that was like my own world. So there was something incredibly satisfying about playing in the space of, okay, so what kind of factions do I want to exist here? What kind of things would be in this world? And it was really a cool experience because like we talked about earlier in this, I was, that was one of the things that got me into role-playing games was that like world building and like creating these weird scenarios and, there's only so much of that you can do if you're trying to make a game that is a love letter to an existing thing. Um, but when you're when you're not doing that, then you get to be really weird with it. Then you get to make you then you get to sit down and go, what if there was a vampire robot and go, yeah, why not? It's my world. I can make a vampire robot if I want. Who's going to stop me? <laughs> And I made one. Oh, that's so cool. So as you're iterating Nova, right? So you, now you've got the world, you've got you've got the uh the bones already existed. You're now putting some some flesh on those bones. Does Lumen change in the process? So you had Lumens at the beginning, and as we get towards the end of Nova, 
getting you know getting uh its its last coat of paint what happened to lumen in the process so lumen stayed as it is and i just didn't make a fully like my lumen game was different than the core rules of lumen um so lumen kept as it was and i call nova illuminated by lumen because it is but um like it immediately deviates from the formula of how lumen works because in in many lumen games your characters will roll to attack and they you'll choose one of the three approaches or attributes that represent how you're attacking. And in Nova, there's no rolling during attacking. It's all a resource management game. You have four powers that you can choose from and every turn you're gonna use one and it costs you fuel to use it. So you're thinking, which power do I wanna prioritize right now? How much fuel do I have? Um, and and that's that concept of, a set of powers and a resource that you use to spend it is half of what Lumen is. I just decided, I just want that to be the whole experience for Nova, essentially, is I just want that to be the thing. Because if I wanted you to feel like unbelievably powerful, hyper-advanced robots, you should never roll to hit. You should never, ever have to roll to hit. You should just always be doing the things that you want to do. And... The, the challenge then of Nova comes from the GM presenting weird hurdles that you will overcome. And this is the thing that's like emphasized in the book is the sparks win. They are going to win. They're so powerful. But you as the GM get to try and find weird ways that they have to, that they will get to the finish line. They're going to get there, but maybe you put them down a weird path that makes them get there. Well, and, and that that's what makes the win a win, right? Yeah. If you don't have obstacles, if you don't have challenges, you don't have a win. So this might be a weird question and I'm going to try to frame it as best as I can, Spencer. So, so work with me a little bit. Yeah. There's what, like 70 freaking Lumen games, I think on itch right now. I mean, yeah, something like that. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. At what point, cause you did it right out of the gate with Nova. At what point does it not deserve or, should it not have a lumen t- sticker on the front of the cover? How, hmm. what has to happen when it stops being lumen? That's, that's interesting. Um, hmm. What does it take to not be a lumen game? And it might be like pornography. You'll know it when you see it, right? I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, the, so like the two fundamental parts of lumen are, your characters are defined by three attributes, which are usually like doing things powerfully doing things quickly or doing things slowly and methodically. And that represents both doing things in and out of combat. So like a shouting match is a powerful thing, even though you're not actually literally trying to like overpower with strength the person. Um, You're studying something, it's going to be that slow, methodical thing. But it's also like lining up the sniper shot. Um, So like just using three stats in a dice pool to like... Figure out if you do things is half of it. The other half is, and there is, I guess there's three, no, there's three pillars. There's three, (laughs) there's another one that I forgot. Um, The second pillar is you have powers and you've got like three, four, or five of them. And that, that, that's your package of powers that you have. And you have a resource that you spend in order to access those powers. That's different than rolling. You don't roll for those powers. You just do them. That's what makes you spectacular. That's what makes it a power fantasy. Um, So games fluctuate in how much you get to push that button, depending on how much they lean into that middle pillar. 
The last pillar is the GM turn, which is in combat, the players do all of their stuff and then you as the GM respond with enemy actions and everything. But the, the, the GM turn is important for two other unique things, which is one, as the GM, you must introduce a hurdle or a change in the fight that will that is significant so that the players won't just go through another round where they use their same powers to finish off the mobs that are out there. They they have to do something different. And two, enemies that die, like a video game, just drop resources out of their bodies in the form of health and whatever is the resource for your powers so that your, 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 your players can, like a video game, run up over these power-ups and just be fueled up again. Um, so it, it, is, it is designed to create the power fantasy. It is fast, powerful, highly effective characters. It is kind of like the tenets of Lumen. So I guess like it starts to deviate. I mean, if you don't have powers, you definitely don't have a Lumen game. Like if you don't have things that you can just do by spending a resource, like if you're rolling for everything, it's no, it's definitely not a Lumen game. Um, So I feel like that's definitely a must, Mm -hmm. but certainly the other pillars, there's a lot of, there's a lot more flexibility. Like, like I said, in Nova, you have those attributes and the, the sparks can roll them, but they don't roll them in combat, really. So you use it for other things. And like the GM turn, Light, which is the, the proto-Lumen game, doesn't have that because it wasn't that wasn't part of the intention. The, the Light was supposed to be harder for you, not as much of a power fantasy. Um, so it doesn't have all of those same elements. And so like those those... The, those pillars maybe aren't as crucial, but I think the thing that makes a Lumen game is the here's your package of cool things that you can do, and you literally get to just say, "I'm doing the thing," and we don't roll for it, we don't inter- you know interpret it or determine how effective it's going to be. You know exactly how effective it's going to cool. be. This is what the power does. But but the 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 management there's a management piece to that right mm. you can't mash that button every turn um and and that GM turn dictates that as well as the resource aspect of it which is neat uh, we already talked about a hedge just very quick when people go to the itch page and they see all of these games what are two or three of them that they have to check out yeah oh, I, know, I know I'm a jerk that's really hard I'm gonna point to in extremist just because it's on my shelf behind me right now and that is by Keegan uh it's their um their homage to uh the the lock tomb trilogy book series so like Gideon the ninth uh, or Harrow the ninth if anybody's familiar it's space lesbian necromancers and it's an incredibly good book there's a series of books and keegan made a lumen game where you are badass space necromancers um it's really really good so and it was also i think the first lumen game that i that i that wasn't me so right um seeing that that it will always have a special place in my heart because of that um Another one I'll shout out is, is I think it's called Our Farm is the Battlefield. I think I think that's this. I, I might have like one or two words off, but it is an anti-capitalist game of a farming collective 
where you, you are farmers who work under these oppressive wizards and you it's about creating a farming co-op and using the golems that are your like farm tools to Holy break crap. down the wizard capitalist system and it's just so good it's so oh, that's cool so good um and then one last one i'll shout out is uh besides hedge which everybody needs to buy hedge immediately is um vibe check which is written by a good friend of mine josh hitty created it it is uh, it's inspired by the uh, the video game series the world ends with you which i i wasn't familiar with when I, I i played this i played vibe check with josh and some other wonderful people and i i, I didn't know the the game that it came from but you want to talk about a game that drips with style the vibe check is the most stylish game that i've ever played in my entire life nice. both like in the way that it looks but like literally style exists as a mechanic in so many cool ways in that game that you just like it just captures the concept of like teamwork and like that, that um you know the the fastball special of uh, colossus throwing wolverine vibe check is built around that entire premise where we're constantly doing that as these like ridiculous anime characters who can do the coolest things in the world it's you will feel very fun and stylish if you play vibe check so uh, we we played a lot of vibe check in like the early time when when josh was making it and uh again having not played the source game i really didn't know what i was getting into other than i knew that we were these characters who are in like you die and now you are in this like weird hunger game style scenario where if you if you win these games you get a second shot at life um which is cool so you know you're gonna yeah. go in these weird weird scenarios where you're trying to earn back your life but it's also um you, you like the style of your character what you're wearing matters like you you need, you need to look cool and like having compatible clothing items that like the style fits and you get like mechanical bonuses for it and then on top of that it drips the style because like i said like the you are supposed to work with one another so if like i cast this weird like ice sheet on the the ground then another player who decides to do like jump on it and skate down the ice sheet gets a bonus on their roll and it it adds to this pool called flow that we can all like use which is just like are we adding to the flow of combat are we making this just kind of constantly cool and momentum and fun and it's just such a cool game. I had so much fun playing it. Well, there has to be like, I would imagine there's a whole lot of and thens happening at the table as you start comboing off each other. It's, it's exactly that. Like, the, you know, in a lot of the Lumen games, it's here's the cool thing I'm going to do. And everybody goes, oh, wow, that's cool. Let me tell you the cool thing I'm going to do. And it's another like isolated, very cool thing. But this was OK. So wait a minute. If if he if he just did this, then I could just do this and then they can just do this. And it just becomes this wild. Okay. But what, and now how am I going to add to this? Like six moves in a row that we've been moving on. Like what is, what could I add to this? And it's, it's exciting as a, as opposed to like, Oh God, how, how will we keep this going? It's, Oh, we'll find a way to animate this and truly make this <laughs> as ridiculous as possible. It's, it's such a good game. Uh, I can't imagine what that feeling must be like to to see to see somebody else, you know, again, take the bones and and turn it into something else. And then for you to have that love and enthusiasm that it's obvious you have for a lot of these games, it's got to be a neat feeling. 
it's the it's the coolest feeling in the world to watch people make something based off of something that you've done and like but then for that not not just to like make something based off of one of your things but to like to to see how cool and into it that they how they interpret it right like like i said my 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 philosophy is that anybody will come up with something cooler than i will for my games slayers was released with a creator kit and then people immediately started making slayers classes that are so freaking cool. cool and i look at this and i go wow wow i would i have ever come up with this probably not and so to to put lumen out there and go this is what i think it can do and then have 70 people go well here's what i think it can do and not always us being on the same page is awesome uh, I, I love that. That's great. So, guys, we're going to take another break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about really the newest game, the game that uh, while you're listening to this is available on Kickstarter, unless you've waited five weeks to listen to this episode. So shame on you. Um, we're going to talk about Rune. We'll be right back. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming, even if there is a link in the show's description. And there is. We don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway... Enjoy this episode, knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. People often say that, you know, the reason that solo role playing has become a big thing was because of COVID. But I think that's disingenuous. I think that we saw it start to really get some momentum before COVID. But that may have been the gasoline. So, you know, Rune is a solo uh, role playing game. Did Rune exist in any way before everybody was stuck in their living <laughs> rooms? Or was it was it COVID for you that made you say, you know what, I want to do this? It was Lumen that made me want to do it. So it, it was in the it was in the the COVID times when it emerged because I wanted to make a solo Lumen game. That was my initial idea was how do I take Lumen and make a game that you can play by yourself? Because if it is just I'm I'm spending these, you know, the resources to use my powers, then that's certainly something that you would be able to to track on your own as an individual. And so Rune was initially a solo lumen game from like a fantasy perspective where you were literally carving runes into your weapons and those then defined the powers that you had for your character and 
Um, it had always been intended to be a, a, a solo thing. And it's not that it's not a solo Lumen game anymore, but that the bones of it came from me thinking, could I make a Lumen game that you play by yourself? Um, just because I, I like, I like solo games. I, I've only made, well, I guess I've made two. I made one that's based off of the wretched, the, the wretched alone, um, system uh, that Chris Bizette had created for The Wretched. And then I made another one called uh, Time to Kill, which is obviously also inspired by like The Wretched and other games where it's it's card-based prompts, journaling sort of thing. And so um, I definitely... And it's, it's a great game. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that game. That was the second game I found uh, after Slayers, and I was like, holy shit. Nice! <laughs> that was a fun and the one. Ca- and people who are listening, we don't have time really to go into it, but go check out Time to Kill. Just the premise is going to make you want to pick it up and read it. Like, you don't even have to know how it works. You'll just understand the premise of the game and why Time to Kill is the title. And I guarantee you've not seen anything like it. But so you, you have an interest in solo. But now, am I wrong in introducing Rune as a solo game? Is it not a solo game? It is a solo game. So, okay. it, yeah, it is a solo Souls-like game. Or it's inspired by the Souls-like genre. So folks at home don't say the real name they have fans too (laughs) so (laughs) sorry that was not probably not a funny joke i'm sorry there's that small part of me that's going like okay on tuesday will i be okay oh Um, god i i don't mean to joke no no it's fine um but no like if you are a, a dark souls fan demon souls bloodborne or you know most recently elden ring um fan of those sort of like punishingly difficult games um, that are very tactical, but like they're difficult, but they can be learned. And so they can be won. Um, and then if you like that element of like combat in those games, but also if you love the environmental storytelling that comes from them through exploring kind of these desolate worlds that only have pieces of what is going on there and you put the story together that's what Rune attempts to do. It tries to m- marry those two concepts together as a solo RPG experience. So when did that peanut butter and jelly meet? When did the this concept and this this touch tone meet with I want to make a solo game? Or was it there? Were they together at the beginning? I think they it came. So I, again, like I was trying to do this this Lumen thing fantasy, and I you know I I I couldn't exactly get it the way that I wanted and. I had had um, I had been reading. Um, I, oh, it's not here. It's not. It's on my shelf. I had been reading Haunted Almanac uh, by Nate Tremay, who folks might know Nate by uh, Highland Para- Highland Paranormal Society is the the name that he uses for publication. Nate makes these incredible like micro settings and uh, adventures and dungeon crawls and small little point crawl things and. They're just like they're they're so good. Nate Nate is most people will know Nate for uh, Tunnel Goons. If you know the game Tunnel Goons, I think I've heard of that. Yeah, Nate made that. Um, and it's I had been reading a lot of like little adventure things, and I I've always wanted to to make an adventure module of some kind, but I've never done it. Never had made like a a hex crawl on its own that was just like here's a world for you to explore. I never. 
I, despite loving the concept of world building, had never sat down and said, I will just make a little world for somebody to play around. And it's just, it's not what I did. So I think that itch had been really like reemerging for me of like, I want to make worlds again. Uh, you know, I want, especially because I, I don't right now have a regular RPG campaign that I'm playing or running in. So like, there's that huge part of me that says, I want to make worlds and I want to play in worlds. <laughs> but I don't have a group right now, <laughs> so I'll do it by myself. Uh, and that sort of that emerges that 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 desire to do world building uh, emerges alongside, but separately, this tactical combat thing that I had been making with uh, a, a a four by four grid. Uh, this the combat system for Rune is largely me borrowing from old tech that I built for a board game. Again, going wow. back to Mike and I making board games before RPGs, uh, I had pushed, I, I had um, proposed this idea of a dungeon crawler where you're moving through a procedurally generated dungeon and you find enemies and you roll a dice to see what the enemy's gonna do and then you kind of go back and forth. And so that tech of dice to determine enemy actions was uh, something that I had uh, I had been thinking about already, and I said, let's just bring that back. And it, I had been also been playing a lot of Elden Ring, <laughs> and you know, I I um I'm not I haven't played, or I I guess I should say I haven't beaten many Souls like games. I I didn't like Dark Souls when I first tried it. I I did not like it at all because um, it was slow for me. Uh, I didn't like the slow. The roll, the 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 roll block hit once and then like move away and then like a fight takes forever. Like that's not fun. That was not fun for me. And because I'm the destiny guy, I'm the guy who I'm the guy who wants to just always be moving, always be killing, and always be like awesome. And so Dark Souls was the opposite of that. And I was like, this is, why would you do this? And then Bloodborne came out, and I went. Ah, this this does it for me because Bloodborne is inherently much more aggressive. It rewards the player for being fast and aggressive. And so that is when I started to get into the concept of the Souls-like games. And then that's when I learned about the, the incredible environmental storytelling and all of that. And so but a big part of those games that I think is really cool and I alluded to it is that you can you can learn from them. You can you can learn and win them if you just learn the movesets of your enemies and so I realized that this whole thing of like rolling a die to determine what the enemy is going to be doing is very souls like because you now know exactly what's coming and how are you going to respond to that? It's very much like a souls like enemy that has the auditory or the visual cue that says, here comes this attack. If you've played this boss enough, you know exactly how to counter it or avoid it or whatever it is that you need to do. So I had realized that the combat system that I had been working on to, to make this Lumen fantasy solo experience felt Souls-like in its intention with the, the, the here comes the attack coming your way. And so when I realized that it had that Souls-like experience and I realized what is so cool about Souls worlds to me was an opportunity for me to get back into that world uh telling that or that world building and like really loose storytelling experience yep. it started to then the the 
the two very, you know, the two different ideas started to bridge uh, the, the gap between them. I get my copy of Rune because I'm I've already backed it by the time this comes out. <laughs> um, it arrives uh, on time, exceeding all my expectations and uh, with the cheapest shipping I've ever seen. It's incredible. And <laughs> um, I sit down on my kitchen table. I open it up. What happens next? So the, the the book that you will get gives you the rules to play the game. So you understand the core rules of the game. And it has in it um, a, a realm that is designed to be an approachable first realm. And so Rune is played through a series of realms. Think of them as adventures, right, that, that you would go on that. Um, or, you know, to, to bring it back to the Souls-like games, think of how any Souls-like world is divided up into very clear, distinct regions. And that region is different than all the others. It's got weird mysteries for you to find. It's got a story of its own for you to discover. Yeah. It has enemy types that maybe are unique. It has a certainly has a boss that is unique that you need to fight. And so Rune is designed around a cycle of play where you go to realms and you stay in that realm and you fully explore it until you eventually fight and kill the boss of that realm and you get a great boon of power from doing that and you then go to the next realm. And those realms will fluctuate in, in terms of how long it takes you to play from you could probably do it in one sitting to it might take a few sittings for you to do sure. it. You know, I, I streamed myself playing some of these and it took like three days of streaming each each day being like a little over an hour of play for like one of the realms. So that that realm was like three hours of solo play in that particular realm. So this the what you get when you open up the book right away is those rules in a realm that's designed for you to be. This is going to this is going to take all the core concepts that you just learned and easily like apply them in a way that you will you'll get the game. You won't be overwhelmed. You won't be um, it's not going to take you forever to go through that first realm. It's going to be the thing that goes, OK, this I, I get it. I understand the core concepts of the combat and I start to see how I can build my own story from this. And then that's when the game really opens up and you start yeah. to go. What realm do I want to try next? What what build do I want to try next? Right? Because that's a very souls like thing is you find the weapons that work the way that you want to work and you go, OK, I already beat this realm before, but what if I tried it again with these weapons? How does that feel? You know, and we all play the new game plus of all these games again and again and again. Right. Like how many times did I play through Elden Ring to to try different builds? Same thing. Right. And so. That, that 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 first core experience is there. Here's the rules. Here's the core assumptions of Rune, and here's a, a realm that works with those assumptions. Now here's the rest of the thing that will. And we kind of talked about this idea about exceptions before. Exceptions to rules. Now you're going to be exposed to a bunch of realms that might tweak that experience that you're used to, and, and each one will feel different and unique compared to the realm that you were in before. And almost like Mega Man style. What's the right. order you want to go through the realms? Uh, and, in you know, inherently then you go through the realms in one order and somebody else is going to go through them in another. And you will realize like, well, I brought, I had already had this weapon from this thing. So this realm was actually kind of easy because I had a weapon that was really good. And somebody else said, I really wish I had that weapon. I came from this realm and <laughs> the spell that I got there did not help me at all. Uh, you know, just like in Mega Man, you could figure out like the ideal order to go through the bosses. So you hinted at the die, the die mechanic as far as, you know, the tactical combat. Um, 
when I go into this realm, when I flip to that page and I get started, um, do I have a character sheet or, you know, once that's created, what I'm trying to, cause like time to kill has its own, you know, the prompt mechanic, mm. right. That it works for I'm trying to get a sense of how do I explore this realm? How do I learn the secrets? Yeah. So there's, there's two phases of play essentially that rune uh, switches back and forth from it's sort of an exploration phase and then combat when you, when you start picking fights with people. Um, and so the narrative is a point crawl approach. So you'll see like an overworld map of the region that you are in. And there's a bunch of points that are connected with, uh, with paths that you can travel and you go to a point and each point will have a page or two. That is the entry for that point. It'll tell you, it'll have like a little bit of flavor text of like, what it's like as you approach this place. And then each point has, four different possible actions that you might find there. And there's going to be combinations of these things. Um, so like you can search, you know, find some valuable resources. You can learn. This is my favorite mechanic from Rune. Learn increases your lore stat, which is a, um, it's sort of a catch-all representation of how much you've explored and like started to understand what's going on in this place. So when you take the learn action, if it's available at this point, You'll get a little bit of flavor text, something that alludes to what's going on here. Your lore stat goes up. And the thing about lore stat is it's connected to a whole bunch of other things in the game. Mm. So um, some points might not be accessible unless you have a certain lore because you just don't know they exist. Or suddenly a shortcut between points exi uh, exists because you now have explored enough to understand you can connect these two places um, you know, it's just like, you know, in the Bloodborne, when I first like when I found my first shortcut that like brought me back to a lamp, I went, oh, wait, oh, my God, I don't have to run through the entire part of Yarnum anymore to get back to yep. this thing. And so, you know, it's that it's um, an example in the, the core realm that you get in, like the, the, the first realm that you play in the book is. If you have a certain lore score, you can skip the fights that lead up to the boss when you get to the boss's oh, castle. Because okay. you know how to like either avoid them or just burn through them. So you don't have to you don't have to increase your lore if you don't want, but there are benefits to doing it. It's me saying, go explore, go look around, see what you can find here. And then the rest of that kind of just come like the learning about what's going on. It just comes from small little bits of flavor text you see on like enemy descriptions or little things. Oh, that's cool. And you weave the story together, right? Like I, I have a concept of what might have gone on in this realm, but what you experience there might not be what I have thought. And that's totally fine. Um, and then otherwise at points you're going to be fighting. Fighting is another action where if there's, if there's some goons there, you're going to go fight them. Um, and then delving, which is sort of a more um, advanced thing where it oftentimes is like requires you to have done something else. It's a more um, involved action. So you might need a key in order to access a lock or a certain lore threshold or something like that. But it's where you get the valuable goods is when you delve and you that's when you get access to like new weapons or um, very specific, unique um, pieces of information or uh, items that are from that realm that are like this is how you can. This is like the weakness of the boss that you suddenly have because you went delving into this one dangerous place. And, oh, that's cool. And so, yeah, you'll go back and forth and mostly you're kind of moving around the map thinking about like, OK, where do I want to go next? What, you know, what should I explore? And then when a fight emerges, you 
Shoom. You switch over to that four by four grid. You fight it out. Hopefully you survive. If you do, you get to go back to the map and keep exploring. So there's a period of time as this thing is, uh, you know, you're kneading the dough and, you know, you're playing it, you're building it out, you're throwing stuff away, you're adding stuff, you're trying it. At what point do you hand it to somebody else? Because the play test here is a little bit different, right? Because when you play test your other games, you might be the GM, right? Mm. Or watch the GM. Whereas this, this, I like, what makes it different? And what was that like the first time someone else played an iteration of this? Yeah, it was the earliest iteration of playtesting was just purely on combat, right? I wasn't interested in the narrative stuff at all. Like the narrative thing for me in the beginning was very secondary. The The primary thing that I needed to make sure worked was that combat was fun. Um, and I mean, if you look at my history of games, my games are about fighting people. <laughs> and so like and in my opinion, they're fun. They're fun ways to fight people. And so if the combat in Rune didn't work, it didn't matter if I had a really cool narrative. The, the narrative thing could be the coolest thing in the world. If the fighting wasn't fun, I didn't have a game. So earliest iterations of playtesting was, here's a big pile of weapons that I've designed. Here's a couple of enemies that I've designed. Just like start, have have people just use different combinations of them and see what feels um, wildly broken what doesn't work where do you run into these points where you're like what am I supposed to do next and that's the that's the really tricky thing about a solo combat thing is you normally have a GM who says this is the next thing that happens in combat this is what the enemy does or this is how we um, decide what happens in this particular scenario and since you are the only person doing that the the engine of combat has to run smooth enough that it handles most situations like right. there will and i it's in the rules itself that says listen you're gonna have to interpret at some point like which enemy you want to go first or like the path mm-hmm. you know, if, if they can move in two different paths you're gonna have to decide which one that they move and i'm not gonna be there to tell you which one is the correct one the one that you choose is the correct one regardless of what you choose and so that play testing was have we covered enough of the the situations that you could find yourself in in combat that you won't sit there and go, well, I have to create my own brand new rule for this situation because I, I truly there's no precedent for handling this thing in in the rules. So that was that was interesting playing around with that space because it felt very board gamey and it is very mm-hmm. board gamey and I. I hadn't been designing in that board game space in some time. So like going back into that, like, oh, wait, the rules need to be really clear and they need to cover things because my rules in my other games are like, you'll figure it out. And we have a table, right? right? You all talk to each other and decide what you want to do. And (laughs) this is not that. And so it it was it was definitely a different but, it, you know, it was a cool experience, but it was a, uh, I had to put myself into a whole new mindset of of thinking about, OK, the, the rules need to actually be like complete and, and work this time. So uh, all these different people try these different combinations. You you take that you watch them, you take the feedback from it. Um, they tell you what the problems are and, you know, you iterate again and again in retrospect now that I would assume playtesting is done or close to done. Um, what was the biggest loot drop for you? So looking at all of the feedback and all of the problems that were like, what do you think was was the best thing that came out of playtesting? 
The best thing that came out of playtesting came from Aaron Jolliffe, who uh, is created. Yeah, he's created his own fan realm already. It's one of the realms that I played on stream. Like Aaron, Aaron has made a bunch of cool stuff for my other games. Like he he's made a bunch of Slayer stuff that is really really neat. Made a Lumin, like made a lot of neat stuff. And um, and Aaron gave. Uh, I I was really still struggling with movement of enemies in the game because um, it's it's easy for me to like come up with a concept of like yeah when you roll the die the enemy is going to do this much damage and maybe negate this much damage that's easy but movement is hard and yeah. you and I wanted movement to be kind of constantly happening or or happening more often because that's what souls like games are like even slower games where you're it's block shield roll you're still rolling you're not just standing there whacking each other with your sword until one of you is dead and so i needed i needed movement to happen and in the especially in the really early iterations you just got stuck like you just eventually were like well we have this four by four grid but we don't really need to move around it we're both next to each other and it's just who will kill the other person first? Dink, 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 yeah. Right. And so um, Aaron really helped kind of unlock some of the um, the trickiness in terms of how to make movement feel more dynamic. How do you how to make how to make it so that the enemy is moving in an interesting way and that forces the player to move that's the big thing it's like got it i we want you want that sort of feeling of you're kind of always on your back foot you're kind of like you shouldn't feel confident most of the time in a fight just right. like a souls like game where you're like I, if i miss if i misstep one time even the weakest enemy will start to to wail on me and so you know it's trying to capture that that vibe of you need to be moving. You need to be adapting. You need to be figuring out how to like not let yourself be next to the enemy because being next to the enemy is bad news for you sometimes. What makes you decide like this is going to be my next game? And not and I don't mean at the beginning. I mean, this is the next game you're putting up on Kickstarter and and this is but if I were to like raid your house right now, I guarantee that I would not read everything is ruined, right? There's several games that you've been working on, some games that you've abandoned, some you've put on the on the back burner, but it's ruined that has risen up to be, you know, your next big project that you're going to push out there. W what caused that to happen? Why Rune? Yeah, I think the the two there's three things, three things that I could think of that that made Rune the next thing. One is when I put the playtest out there for people to play, they were really into it right away. So I got I got that immediate feedback, even though there were like the weird uh, hiccups in the the rules. I got a lot of people right away going, "This is really cool. I really enjoyed playing this," and so you know that that immediate level of reinforcement goes okay this is i i like that i like <laughs> i like that people like it so uh i want more of that that dopamine please um two is is i wanted to make something new this is something that i was struggling with at the beginning of the year where i at the very beginning of the year i was i did a lot of like thinking out loud where i was thinking I don't think I have a new idea in me right now. Um, I, you know, I had, I had made Lumen last year, Lumen, totally new thing. And know where that came from it. The year before that Slayers, totally new thing. And 
I, I came at the start of 2022 going, uh, I don't think I've got a, I don't think I know what, a new thing. And I had, I had already started kind of making peace with, and this is not a bad thing, but I had thought mm-hmm. I'm going to just make supplements for my own stuff. Like that was kind of my plan going into the year was I'm going to just make some cool new Nova stuff, some new districts and stuff for Slayers and um, some new light classes. And if I did that, that would have been totally fine. Um, And so when Rune kind of like very rapidly emerged into what it became, because it it really was a slow burn on on two different fronts that suddenly I like fused together very quickly. Um, And I saw a new thing. I went... I do have a new idea after all. (laughs) And I wanted to go down that path. Um, And then the third thing is that I get to do world building. And that's, that's the thing that I've really been missing is like, I've been, I keep telling myself, I'm going to make some mini dungeons that are just like dungeons that I really spin the world in adventures. And I saw <laughs> so they become a get another game. And then I, yeah. And then I don't do that. And then I just turn them into a whole, whole ass game instead. Uh, um, yeah. But like it is, it is that like I, I get to just play around with what would this weird region be? about this like and i pick a theme that's interesting to me and then i just think okay what would this theme what what kind of story could happen here um and that's really that's exciting to me because many 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 of my games most of my games have lore to them but not a lot and that's intentional Uh, you know oftentimes there's not a lot of lore in them because i want the table to create its own but this is a this is one where i get to kind of go this is what i think the story is you might disagree and that's fine but I got to make my story here. And that's, that's kind of cool that you then let other people explore in that space. Yeah. And I, what the thing that gets me excited now learning so much about it is, I mean, I, and, and I'm obviously I'm a huge Slayers fanboy, So I need to like, like that, that's been revealed. Right. So like I, I, I go out and I find all of this fan made stuff for it. Um, and, and, you know, it sounds like, that's also possible here. The concept of, you know, these, the, these different, um, what was the term you used? I'm realms. sorry. Realms, the different realms, right? I mean, it, it, um, that's super exciting and, and allows me to potentially get my hands on a solo game that doesn't end at the last page, which is pretty damn cool. There are, and I can't believe this already. There's like nine fan-made realms for rune that already exist which is Amazing. wild to me like the game is not out there yet and like there are the there's just some really cool people in the gila rpgs discord who are like yeah i made one here it is and so uh and it's cool because people are playing each other's realms and, and talking about their experiences and sharing their stories and it's very cool watching this and just so i know and this is this is the thing that I do is I, I like making hackable games. I like making things that people can can that can inspire the, the you to design something. And uh, so I know that people will make realms because they already have. Um, and that's that's kind of the cool thing to me is the the concept of making the whole realm is you know you you could certainly just make here's some weapons I made or here's some enemies I made and, and that's that's totally fine. But the to to make the whole package to say here's a realm. Here's some places that are in it. Here's some enemies that are in it. Here's some items that are in it. 
and I've got a story that I've got woven through it. What do you what do you read when you play the game? Uh, Well, and what's so cool, too, is that I could go to that fan made realm, come back into one of your realms or jump to another fan made realm. And and my experience is going to be different. The same way you talk about Elden Ring, Mm. going through a new build, playing through these again. Um, That's very exciting. So. Uh, Spencer, the other thing that I love to do towards the end of an interview, uh, because I've always find this interesting, is I like to know what creators consume. Um, So for you lately, um, is there a book, a show, is there a game that has really taken up more more of your time than it should have (laughs) that you have just binged watched or become obsessed with or couldn't put down um what what have you got your teeth in right now and you can't let go i watched the entirety of severance in like one sitting uh severance is <laughs> Did you really? so good <laughs> it is I watched stupid it good. technically two sitting so we went to korea last month and the flight had the first three episodes on it and i watched those and said well this is <laughs> this is amazing downloaded the rest of them uh and then watched them on the flight back so uh three in the first uh trip six on the second trip severance is so good it's so good (laughs) i'll it doesn't happen very often that 15 minutes into a show i go oh wait a minute Mm -hmm. and literally you sit up yeah and go now you've got my attention and it doesn't let it go it's (laughs) it's so 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 good uh, so severance is the thing that I binged watched most recently. Um, I am drip feeding for myself, uh, Sandman. I'm doing the same. Uh, yeah. I, I, it is, I'm taking every bit of willpower I can to not, when I finish an episode to not watch the next one. I'm, re- I'm really, really enjoying it. And I am trying to not, I'm trying to savor it, which is atypical of how I typically, how I usually do this thing. Um, is it because you're like me and you I can't believe that I'm actually watching Sandman that as a bet I would have lost a long time ago and I've waited decades for this this is one of my favorite pieces of literature ever um, is it the same for you or is this your first introduction to Sandman I, I've I you know I've, I'm similar space where I've read it and I've read it again and it's incredible I, I love it and so to see it on TV uh, is a very cool experience and so um trying to just like enjoy that experience for as long as possible uh is is my is my goal um and it's you know it's one of those things where i i don't i i don't have a lot of friends who have read sandman so they're not familiar with it so um I'm not trying to like binge it to like keep up with the conversations about it. So it's just me getting to enjoy this show at a pace that I like. And that's been uh, an absolute delight. What I've liked about it, too, is much like The Expanse, the creators are part of they were in the room. Right. And you can tell that's why The Expanse is so goddamn right. good. It's because the, the, the writers were in the room. And obviously, Neil was very much a part of Sandman. But I'm watching with my wife who has no familiarity whatsoever and she turns to me she goes what's going on and i turned to her and i go i have no fucking idea <laughs> and she goes, well you've read this and i'm like yeah but honey like this is they're doing other things this is not the comic but it is the comic and i absolutely loved that is what i loved about the expanse is that even though i'd read the books i didn't know what was going to happen 
but it still felt like Leviathan Wakes. It still feels like Sandman, which is which is really damn cool. All right. Last question for you. Um, what is because uh, I, I um, if I could pinch zoom your picture right now, I'd be obsessively looking at your board game shelf. <laughs> um, what is, in your opinion right now, for people listening, the best board game not enough people are playing? Oh, so you can't pick Rising Sun, right? You can't pick Azul. Yeah. Uh, best game that board game that not a lot of people are playing. Not enough. Not enough people are playing. Um, you just went, holy shit, this is something. That's, oh, man. <laughs> that's, that's hard. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, it's called Deep Sea Adventure. I don't. It's this tiny little blue box right there. It's an Oink game, uh, Oink Games game. So Oink Games, they make these little boxes, uh, little box games. They're have incredible art. It's a Japanese board game uh, company. Um, so oftentimes, many of their games are lang- very language independent. Um, and Deep Sea Adventure is an absolute delight as a push your luck game of deep sea diving for treasure that will get you looking at the person across the table and going are you seriously going for another dive right now um and it's so small that you can carry you can throw it in the smallest bag bring it with you lay it out on the table it looks really cool um all of the oink games are really really fantastic uh and that that one in particular is is my favorite one so i think everybody should be playing uh, deep sea adventure. Oh, that's great. So uh, you guys know the routine. Everything that we've talked about is all linked below. So you can just scroll down right now and you can grab it. Make sure you obviously go to the Kickstarter link. You also got the itch link. Um, so you can talk, get your hands on all of these different games or at least peruse them that we've been talking about. And some of the auxiliary stuff that we've talked about, I'll have linked as well. Um, but if someone is listening right now, Spencer, and outside of the links below and they just want more Spencer, mm-hmm. um, I know where I go for more Spencer. Where should they go? Best place to find me is on Twitter. Uh, that's where I shout about games and other things like that. So you can follow me at Gila RPGs, G-I-L-A-R-P-Gs. Um, the uh, other best place to find me is on Twitch. Uh, I, I uh, try to stream semi-regularly. I have no set schedule, so you kind of just have to follow my channel and like be around when I stream because I... I truly just like manifest for an hour, talk about design, and then I disappear until I decide to do it again. But uh, I have a lot of fun doing design streams on Twitch, and it's also a really good way to uh, get a little bit of insight into how how I think about designs and how I because uh, I, I just I just talk out loud until ideas start to manifest, and uh, hopefully that's uh, useful to some people. It's extremely useful to me, so uh, I, I recommend checking those things out. It's very behind the curtain, which I like. Um, and it's also it's got a nice community feel to it, too, Spencer. You you kind of foster that, which I think is fantastic. Um, there is a ton of things to do on a Friday night that doesn't involve sitting and talking about games with me. So I really appreciate you making the time, man. I had an absolute blast. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And for those of you that sat all, all let me try that again. For those of you that sat through this whole thing, you made it to the end. And I appreciate you doing that. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch 
Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stay updated on everything coming from Third Floor. All the links are in the show notes. Take care, Floorheads. God, I'm just trying to pull stuff out of you, Spencer. It's tough, man. I can't get you going. <laughs> I'm a real, I'm a Work with book. me. I, I really, I don't like to talk. Don't, certainly don't like to talk about myself at all. So this has been oh. a nightmare for me. <laughs> this is my Vietnam, Craig. This is, this is tough. This is real tough. Uh, it's, it's perfect, my friend. Perfect. Excellent. I'm having a all blast. Right. I hope so. Good. Thank you. Um, all right. I'll bring us back. Uh, oh hey are you still here wow um well the episode is over but if you're bored why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month yeah you can just scroll down scroll down and yeah get the link it's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye. <laughs>